Hi, and welcome back to Now. In this podcast, we celebrate all things related to the variously compiled world of pop. We will also consider the wider world of pop culture and how our favourite compilation albums shaped our lives and now fondly stand as time capsules for our musical journeys. Please follow the podcast on your favourite podcast place and there's plenty more with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. For this episode, we welcome Justin Quirk. Justin is a writer and editor based in London. He's written extensively for the likes of The Guardian, The Times, Sunday Times, Mr Porter, and he's spoken about everything from art and culture to menswear and politics. His first book, Nothing But A Good Time, The Spectacular Rise and Fall of Glam Metal, was published in 2020 and was chosen as one of The Times and Word Magazine's top 10 music books of the year. With David Hepworth, calling it a very clever book about some very dumb music. Justin, welcome back to Now. Thank you very much for having me, Ian. First of all, congratulations on the book. For those needing an introduction, what is glam metal and how did it spectacularly rise and fall? It was a relatively easy subject to write about in the sense that it's one of those genres that comes and goes very abruptly. I really bookended it from 1983 to 1991. Um, it starts probably second Motley Crue album and it goes out in 1991 with the second Guns N' Roses album and the uh, the arrival of grunge. Now, really, if you just picture in your head, it's all the archetypal big hair, pyrotechnics, men who look like Cher, women who look like Beverly Roth in the, uh, in the 80s in LA. Main exponents, you're talking sort of like Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, Poison... I loved this music at the time. You know, it was a huge commercial crossover genre. And yet it's left almost no mark or imprint on modern pop music. You never hear anybody say, do you know what? I was massively into the Scorpions or I was massively into Skid Row. And you think, well, somebody was. I find as I get older, often what interests me more about music and fashion and art and culture generally is not so much what happened, but it's more like, why Why did it happen? You know, everything happens in the time and the place it does for a reason. You know, I'm sort of a child of the 80s. I was born in 1976. You know, that was the decade that I came through. And the further it recedes into history, the stranger it looks. And we're kind of at the point now, and I've been going through that thing for a few years, where you start to see your childhood recontextualized as history. And what I started to realise quite quickly was... Whether people like this music or not, you cannot tell the story of that time without talking about this music. I find that period so fascinating and I think it shaped so much of who we are and where we are now. I will put my hands up and say it wouldn't have been my first choice of music. However, the book is a fascinating kind of almost cross-pollination of how glam metal took its influences because glam really didn't hit the USA and you mentioned that in the book however it's obviously very obvious that a lot of the later metal and rock stars were influenced by glam without it being a big thing and the kind of links that you make in the book as well between how glam metal took a lot of the model from disco I think is really, really interesting as well. This was something that sort of occurred to me as I was writing the book. This wasn't like a sort of great worked out thesis that And the first is that structurally, a lot of the best glam metal is basically disco without syncopation. Now, imagine living on a prayer 
in a slightly different rhythmic configuration with Teddy Pendergrass singing it. And it makes sense. Yeah. Basically, it used a lot of the same tricks and tactics. So it tended to use things like the big minor key verses that resolve into these huge sort of four to the floor major choruses. There's very good reason for it. You know, when you look at, say, who the key songwriter for hire in glam metal was, is Desmond Child, who came squarely out of the disco era. He writes, I was made for loving you for Kiss, which is probably like the, the archetypal disco metal crossover. The other way that I think there's a very interesting kind of analogue between metal and disco is in terms of where metal sits critically. The standard reading of disco nowadays is that it's a very, very serious cultural form. It's not just music. It tells you something very, very profound about the time and the place in which it emerges. I, you know, you would struggle to talk about the experience of like Black Americans, Gay Americans, you know, Latino Americans. The way that different scenes were evolving, like racially and sexually, in like the West Coast, Chicago, and you, you can tell all of that through disco. Now, fifteen years ago, that wasn't the case. Fifteen years ago, disco was idiots going to car wash in Afro wigs. Okay, this was popular, this was mainstream, it's thought of as being math, but it tells you everything about a time and a place and a people, whether or not you like the music. That was really what I wanted to do for metal with this book. And I think, in this, again, in the same way that it was with disco, when you trim away the stuff that's like the math fringes, there is a body of work at the heart of glam metal that you just cannot argue with. We may be, I don't know, maybe people are ready to start looking at it differently again. Yeah. And, you know, but it's always the way. You know, these things get kind of repackaged in sort of history and they're much more complicated and intermingled and remembered. And I think it's what's really interesting about going back to look at these playlists because I'm as guilty of it as anyone. You know, our own memories are completely fallible. It's interesting to go back and reinterrogate these things. incredibly lucky. I mean, I grew up in a house that was just firehosed with culture generally and music specifically. So I was um, grew up in Southwest London. Both my parents sort of were incredibly cultured in a way that was fairly self-educated. So they'd sort of immersed themselves in this stuff and they didn't have that thing. I think people who've been very formally educated about culture often have this sort of hierarchy of like, well, this is the canon and this stuff's a bit low culture and ghastly. And they didn't really have any of that. In many ways, my mum had a far, far more interesting musical adolescence than I did because she was climbing out of the bedroom window and sort of sneaking down to Eel Pile and bunking over on the ferry to the White, you know, White Hearts, the White Cross Hotel. But she saw kind of everyone there. So Stones very early on, you know, Long John Baldry, Steam Packets, Kinks. The Kinks were big favourites. You know, the Yardbirds, the Blues Breakers. My dad grew up in Liverpool, has this sort of story where he saw the Beatles three times. I think he said the first time he saw them was in a youth club near where he lived in Heightens a height, and then as now quite a lively area. And he said this massive fight broke out before they came on stage. And I think someone got hit around the head with a bench and the gig was called off. So it didn't seem that time. Second time he saw them at the cavern. And he said, I remember being in there and just thinking, 
this place is a complete death trap. And I think he had a bit of a nervo and left. He said, I didn't see them then either. And then the third time he saw them was at the, would have been the Royal Court. And he said it was just pointless. He didn't have a proper backline. Yeah. Everyone's screaming, so you can't hear anything. And then he did say a week later, he saw Roy Orbison in the same venue. And uh, in my dad's way, he said, the big O wazzed all over them. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had a big, there's a big Irish contingent in the family. So dad was a really big country and Western family, had a lot of very traditional Irish stuff in the house. They just kind of immersed us in everything. And a lot of my dad's friends were very, very into music. So they would often be just saying, you know, here's a load of blank tapes, have free run of my record collection. And as a result, pretty much all of my childhood memories are bound up with music in a very elemental way. But I think, I mean, my earliest conscious memory, the, the video for The Wall, Pink Floyd being on top of the pops, yeah. December 1979, so I'd been three and a half, and having all these sort of Tupperware boxes sort of arranged around the TV and, you know, like playing the drums along to it. And that was what I did every week when Top of the Pops was on. And I watched that the way that I would also, you know, would have watched cartoons or children's TV. I can remember my mum having me in her arms and singing uh, Hit Me With Your Rhythm Sticks, Ian Jury, and dancing around the kitchen and... Music build it really does build up those kind of profound emotional connections. And I think one of the things that's interesting with these compilations is, you know, like as you're saying, they're they're such perfect snapshots of the time and the place. And it just, you know, it wires into something very, very profound. And one of my cousins works with um in dementia care and the way that they use music in sort of memory reconstruction. And I can 100% see how that works. You know, a lot of memory is extremely unreliable. Mm. And a lot of visual memories we have are things that we've reconstructed from photographs. But that's not the case with music. You can take a snapshot of a compilation album and look at it in a very superficial way. And I think it's fascinating to be able to put a lot of these three-minute pop songs within that context of what was going on in people's lives. And it ties up with oral history as well and actually keeping those things alive. Because, you know, if we only had those documentaries that told us, you know, those those kind of, <laughs> those documentaries where we see um, 1960s kids in listening booths or we see uh, bin bags all stacked yeah. up in the mid-70s, you can marginalise your understanding of what pop culture and pop history actually is by just watching them. <laughs> Featuring Mars, the Commune yeah. Arts, and the number one from Tapau. So Thirty top chart hits on the brilliant double album. Now that's what I call music. Ten. Let's go back to the autumn of 1987 and the release of <laughs> Now Ten. Released 23rd of November 1987, it was number one for six weeks and was the fourth best-selling album of the whole year. What was autumn 1987 for you then, Justin? Well, this was an interesting time for me. I mean, this was largely why I chose this album. So it's the year I turned 11. I've just started secondary school. So it's quite a big shift in life. And so I've gone from... You know, sort of very, very small, very lovely, very sort of cosy, little sort of C of E junior school <clears throat> to a sort of vast industrial secondary school on the edge of Hamworth. Immediately adjoining each other, you had a very, very posh girls' school, a very posh boys' grammar school, our school, and then a gypsy resettlement site, uh, sort of all immediately adjoining each other. And I think the idea was that 
everyone would sort of harmoniously level each other out. Um, you can probably guess, you know, roughly how well that worked out. So, you know, it was quite a sort of big step change, you know, and I think you sort of remember those times in your life, you know, you go from sort of little school to big school. The Now albums, I'd always had this sort of connection to, because they were, when I first started getting records, so the first single I ever bought was um, Calm Chameleon. Uh, me and my sister, I think, pulled our resources and bought it together from WH Smith's in Richmond. But the first LPs I got, so... I mentioned we always had there's a lot of adults around in the house. My mum's brother for Christmas bought me the first three Now albums. You've mentioned this before on the podcast. They were they were quite a high quality product, mm. you know, in terms of you know these sort of like quite heavy sort of gloss sleeves. They were nicely designed, and I think this is one of the first things that you notice about this that tells you all is not well in the world of Now is that the sleeve bit of a letdown i'm saying yeah. it's a bit of a non-event you've had you know the glory i mean i'm my glory years are the pig in sunglasses obviously <laughs> you know the pig is nowhere to be seen to me i always think of it as like like in a motel or something yeah i think the fact that there's no sort of overarching theme or idea to the sleeve is something that we're going to see threading throughout the entire album it's that sort of lack of a cohesive idea and you know, sort of looking back, I mean, some of the stuff that was going on in the sort of like the, the months leading up to this compilation, I'd like the great storm of 1987, yes. where half the country gets upended. Earlier on today, apparently, a woman rang the BBC and said she heard that there was a hurricane on the way. Well, if you're watching, don't worry, there isn't. Black Monday has happened, where, you know, everyone's lost their pensions and the economy's melted. The AIDS crisis is still in sort of absolutely full gear at this point. I think 87 is a year when they have the public information campaign really ramps up. Mm. First aids and those sort of broadcasts are on. But the King's Cross fire. And you know, things like the Zeebrugge, like the ferry disaster. And, yeah. and it really, I think this compilation is very much forged in that sort of period. There is a closing of a chapter feel in yeah. pop culture here. It was, yeah, really going back to it. And then, you know, there's a lot of high pop water moments on this album, but there's no consistent feel no. Is it uh, too poncy to quote uh, Gramsci in a review of Now That's What I Call Probably Music? Probably not, no. In the sense that it's you know, Gramsci's line of uh, the old ways are dying, but the new cannot yet be born. This feels like pop music is in a holding pattern. There are very tentative shoots of what is going to define the rest of kind of the long 80s, but it's not really there yet. What this does give you a sense of is just what a kind of electrical surge house music is going to be when it arrives, because it arrives almost fully formed. There's so little sign of it here. Gives you retrospectively some sense of how alien and violent that arrival was. What a strange record to start now. Well, what an odd year this was. Yeah. This sounds like a very big, grandiose thing kicking things off. You've got some difficulty following a track like this. I mean, I mean, this is I mean the backstory to this is interesting. But I again I remember Barcelona as being a much later record than it is because I associated it with the Barcelona Olympics in 1992. The record had to be in place for the handover session in 1988 so it's recorded in 1987 co-written by mike moran who yeah. beautifully also co-wrote snot rap for kenny yeah. Everett. 
as you say, it's it's a very strange song when you go back and listen to it because it feels like it should be from a musical, but it's not. Yeah. I also think structurally it's quite a strange song because oh, it doesn't... God, yeah. and it's long. Queen are a really strange band in that for you know their undeniable talents in many ways, they only ever really worked as a cohesive unit. Mm. You know, Queen's solo projects and offshoots are not great. For such a talented bunch of people, they never really worked outside no. of the conversation. So this is actually an odd example of a Queen offshoot that was a legitimate hit, but wasn't the number one, only got to number eight. Yeah. Which, as you say, you know, given that often they would, you know, roll things off at track one side, one with a big number one. I think probably, I would imagine EMI were probably a bit disappointed it wasn't a bigger hit. Element and, it did, and it did much better. I think in 1992 it got to number two or number yeah. three. It did, it did much better then, and I guess it was on TV a lot. And yeah. I don't think you would blame anyone for skipping past this one. I mean, that, this is quite the palate cleanser. I mean, what, what a song. They're still in the absolute imperial phase at this yeah. point. Linking back to what we were just saying then about what was going on in the country at the time, it's, it's got an incredibly melancholy quality to it. Oh, yeah. A really yeah. beautiful piece of music. And I think it's the first Pet Shop Boys song that I remember hearing at the time and thinking there's something else going on under the surface here. And, you know, you look back and, you know, Derek Jarman was making the videos. And you think, I mean, they really were smuggling some stuff into the mainstream there, weren't they? But we were spoiled. The You know, the writing of the lyrics, the melody of it, there's such depth in it, you know. It's perfect. It is such a well-written song. I didn't realise this was a really big hit everywhere. I mean, this was number one in Poland. Hmm. I mean, they were legitimately huge, everyone. And I think in a way that we maybe didn't always fully appreciate in this country, you know, because it was less globalised then. You know, I don't think we realised... Yeah, massive in Japan, I mean, number ones in Eastern Europe. I mean, it's, you know, for, say, for very complicated and quite obtuse in some ways music. Yeah. Um, but just, and I think it just, it really holds, I mean, all, all those records there really, really hold up. I had bought Actually earlier on in the autumn, and it is just an embarrassment of riches. If you haven't heard or gone back and listened to the Actually album, yeah. it's an amazingly accomplished It's a masterpiece. I album. Think it, it really is. is. And I think often overlooked for other albums in the Pet Shop Boys canon, I think, but mm. they're just incredibly well-written songs and just an embarrassment of riches. Never can say goodbye, coming on. It's, um, I think this sounds very dated, yeah. And I think at the time, I wouldn't have known... I'm quite liking this at the time, but I didn't know that any of these songs were covers. No, it's no. Only this way. And I think, in a way, they were doing for disco what UB40 were doing for reggae. You know, it was going back to the music of their youth and slightly sanding the edges off it yeah. for a kind of modern, uh, modern listener. I think the problem is, once you've heard Jackson's... Or particularly the Gloria Gaynor version... Yeah it's quite difficult to then go back and listen to these ones. And I think that's true of all the covers that Jimmy, some you know, whether it's, you know, hurt so good or, you know, this, I think once you know the originals, yeah. these ones, and again, it's, it's interesting in terms of the production where we're saying those Pet Shop Boys don't sound dated in a way that I think these Communards records sound very thin. Yeah. There's just that slight feel. Having said that, number four, you can't argue with the chart place, can you? It's, no. And also, you know, I'd imagine, do you know what? Again, we're talking about everything that's going on at the time. I'd imagine if you were in heaven 
1987, you know, you probably just want to hear an absolutely banging slice of high energy like that. Track four. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition from 4 AD. They really don't. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we've got AR Kane and we've got Colourbox on the periphery of indie and they just go and create one of the biggest, most influential songs of the year. This, I think, is probably the most interesting song on the whole album. The idea that music is slightly frozen at this point and we're in a holding pattern. This is the song that points the way forward. They say it's Colourbox, AR Kane, 30 different samples you had to get cleared. The project had kind of died by the time the record came out. Yeah. And yet it turns out to be this monster. It's number one in the UK, Canada. Well, There's number one in Zimbabwe. And interestingly, in the countries in Europe, which are going to go on to be very significant in different bits of electronic dance music, Italy, it's a huge hit. You know, it's the Netherlands, it's massive. Thursday nights, Top of the Pops would be on. Friday morning, there'd be a kind of, you know, a bit of a unpacking of it amongst people who were you know interested in that kind of thing my memory is friday morning science lesson and there being macho hilarity at this song having been on top of the pops and you know, very sniffy i'd like you know we'd all love to pretend we got this no one did everyone was like you know they're not even a band this isn't real music it's just a drum machine what the hell was this rubbish and the one person who called it differently, there was this incredibly hard girl in our class who uh, I think was from this sort of Greek traveller family. And I remember everyone just sort of like hooting with derision about this song. And I remember very clearly her just silencing everybody and saying, you're all completely wrong. And this is what everything is going to sound like in future. All credit to her. If she's out there. In terms of the step change that goes on between now 10 and 11. By now 11, mm. you've got a whole side of this stuff. You've got Bomb the Bass, Yaz, House Arrest by Crush, the mm. Beatmasters are on there. This is the point where it hasn't quite punctured through. But by the next volume, I think you can really see which way the wind is blowing. Labour of Love by Hue and Cry. There's an odd notion, and you see this in quite a few of these I think you could possibly also see this in things like Johnny Hates Jazz on this to a lesser extent and mm. Wet, Wet, Wet. There's this sort of odd idea of authenticity in sort of quote marks yeah. that runs through some of the music on here that, you know, authentic is overall vocal performances and real instruments and very, very obvious kind of musical reference points. And I found myself sort of listening back to this and thinking, is that sort of like honky soul music? I don't know who this is for. It's that very much second half of the 80s, a waistcoat and a tie. It's sort but, of homeopathic Sade. It's yes. like something that started with Sade in the Wag Club. I feel like, you know, being a bit jazzy and wearing a big suit is a, yeah. a good thing. But two years down the line, it's sort of gone into this kind of mutant branch of like, it's like the, you know, top man to Savile Row. I just don't know. I mean, they're, you're Scottish. I mean, were, were they like a big concern in Scotland that they like formed this... <laughs> Huge sort of grassroots. I'm not taking responsibility <laughs> for you and cry, Justin. <laughs> and the goalposts getting ripped down at Wembley in like 19... Responsibility for that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's almost this, you know, there was a lot of phrases at that time, the kind of blue-eyed soul. The one, when I was looking up a few of these things on Wikipedia, they're all classed as sophisty pop. Oh, that's horrible. horrible but you know what? But I can see what they mean. 
but there's that well there's a line in the song where all the music dies away and stops and Pat Kane shouts you know what I'm going to say pseudo satisfaction baby now <laughs> if there's ever a need to step back and question a band it's there I don't know I, I having said all that I can see how you know it, it's like nightclubs when you still have to wear a suit to get in yeah yeah. It's that kind of music. And I can see, I suppose there's that odd thing that you got through a lot of Scottish music in the 80s where bands looked to America rather than London. Yes. You know, and you see that through like the whole sort of postcard records. And, you know, when you first see like when Wet 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 first come out and mm. there's, you know, even like Texas or bands like that, you know, it's obvious in terms of like the way they're dressed and their reference points and what they're tapping into. And I guess you know there's kind of a memphisy thing going yeah. on there. there were other bands that did it better so for example the likes of love and money and yeah. uh, hipsway for example who kind of you know shone very brightly the real thing by jelly bean featuring stephen dante i mean this is right up my street and i absolutely love 80s soul and yeah. jelly bean is a really he was a really, really significant DJ in the development of club music through New York in the 80s. I've seen him live a bunch of times in the last couple of years. He still kills it when you see him yeah. play live. And he, he played at those, um, those Larry Levan revival mm. parties the World Aid Day. Much as I like this record, this isn't top draw jelly bean. And the problem is like 82 to 86, really, you had this purple patch mm. of that kind of electro soul. You know, all the stuff that was on Prelude, like D-Train, all those sort of artists cameo within those monster records the stuff that shannon was putting out yeah colonel abraham's track brilliant, brilliant yeah. that's a really high bar this is not as good as that and it's that period where that whole kind of electro soul thing is running into the sand yeah but house hasn't quite taken over yet yeah. something needs to come through here do you want to talk about johnny hates jazz well, it's, I mean, there's not a lot to say. I mean, it's, you know, it's the, it's against the hue and cry territory. It's the big oh, suit. It's the fisted pop. Um, I always assumed it was a Stock Aitken and Waterman track, but it's not. Um, no. They did actually write their own stuff, which I didn't. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, they kicked off with Shattered Dreams earlier on in the year, which had been a number five. Yeah. This made number 11. Turn Back the Clock made number 12. There's a pattern here. You're going down the dumpster at that point, aren't you? Uh, yeah, and and basically that that's the thing. Heart of Gold, which you know, you, on, yeah. on now 12, number 19, and then it's then it's gone, you know. Yeah, it, it's not great. I mean, they're, they're still a going concern, I understand. Now, I looked them up and they still seem to be going Bachelor and one other. It wanted by the Style Council. I'd say I'm a sort of moderate Paul Weller enthusiast. I mean, I often sort of like the fact that he's doing what he's doing rather than actively wanting to listen to it. This is, again, when we talk about this this feeling of kind of treading water that infuses a lot of this album, this is not a great time for the Style Council. You've got, um, I don't think this was actually on an album. It's that period between The Cost of Loving and Confessions of a Pop Group, yeah. where they're obviously sort of, they're unravelling a bit and there's a sense of a band that are trying out a lot of different things. You know, this is like a fine, serviceable song, but it's... It's unmemorable, isn't it? A brand new number one, and it's actually the 600th number one since the chart was first compiled in 1952. And it is to power with a wonderful track called China in Your Hands. 
if you wanted to put on a song that took everyone back to 1987, it would be this. But what's also interesting is that it's a huge kind of music which has left almost no trace in the modern era. I think if you played this to like a 16-year-old now, I think this would sound as anachronistic as like Skiffle or Telstar or something would. Yeah. What I do think is interesting, and we'll go through this a lot on this side, is this is when you realise what a big thing glam metal was. So this takes in the obvious bands who are actually metal, but then what you have is a kind of outer ring, a sort of corona of bands who are sort of glam adjacent. You would see Tapau covered in Kerrang. Not, and again, this was interesting when I was researching my book, I went back and immersed myself in all these back issues of Kerrang. And, you know, they had Phil Collins on the cover. Mm. You know, they would feature people like Tapau and In Excess would get... Now, those those bands were not metal in any great sense. But I think if you look at a photo of Tapau, they'd clearly clock that, well, look, stylistically, there's something you can glom onto here. And in terms of, like, the mullety hair and the bike jackets... They probably had a history as more of a metal band at some point. I don't know that. That would be my guess. And I think they sort of epicked it up a bit into sort of a pop thing. But they are simply, if you've never heard them, you look at a photo of them, they look a bit like, they basically look like a glam metal band. It's that concept of a corona. Mm. It's very interesting. Um, Bonnie Tyler is classic glam adjacent. You know, not a glam artist, but glam adjacent. Um, And, you know, and it was a much broader church than people remember it being you know the cult was certainly you know glamour they they very sensibly kind of switched their look and their sound when they kind of relocated to america when brand ran about like electric certainly sonic temple but again i think it betrays how big this stuff was commercially and it filled that void commercially there is a gap and again and something i went into a lot in the book this is tied very very closely to the rise of mtv yeah 82 83 there is a federal court case in America that um, the cable MTV win against the cable TV carriers. And it basically is a restraint of trade case that means that MTV goes from being a very small local concern in New York to being relayed out across every cable system in the country. And that completely transforms music in that it gives music a visual, a much more of a visual dimension and Almost overnight, really, you have a load of careers ended of bands who were massive in the 70s and were still big into the 80s, but they didn't work visually. I think in the same way that the New Romantics realised that you had to work visually or you didn't work at all. This sequence of music that we've got here is probably the most prescient sequence that actually makes sense. You know, the rest of the album really is very, very disparate. So we go from Tapau and Chain in Your Hand to a huge global hit, which is Heart and Alone. I love this record. I love this record so much. It's um, I only realised uh, when I was writing the book that this is actually a cover version. Which I didn't I, know that either. I yeah, didn't know it. Yeah. Most of people don't. It was mainly because the, the original died on its ass. But get this for songwriting pedigree. So the original is a hit for I-10, never heard of them prior to this, which is Bill Steinberg and Tom Kelly. This is the absolute top draw of proper hack songwriting. These are the guys who wrote Like a Virgin, True Colours for Cindy Lauper, Eternal Flame for the Bangles, So Emotional for Whitney Houston. And they also wrote or co-wrote um, I Drove All Night was them. I Touched Myself, The Divinals, I Stand By You for The Pretender. I mean, can you imagine 
the size of these guys' royalty statements. Yeah. Like, I like to imagine like once a year, a removal van for <laughs> bullying just reverses up to their house because they live together, I presume. Tipper trucks this thing into their front gardens, right? Fill your boots, lads. I mean, the original of Alone is a bit of a dog's breakfast of a record. Hart rearranged it. It really feels like a different production when you go to it. And Hart are, they're an interesting example of what was going on in that, the whole glam revival, the whole glam metal scene was essentially made up of twin tracks in that you had the new bands like Motley Crue, Dokken, like all these sort of bands who were coming through. But then what you also had was a load of bands from the 70s who had inspired them, who saw which way the trends were going and realised that if they kind of rebooted themselves, they could essentially have some of this scene and be much bigger than they ever were first time round. So these 70s bands, they were really were kind of on their uppers in a lot of cases. I mean, Aerosmith were dead in the water. I mean, yeah. they, and Hart, I say, if you go back, Hart in the 70s are a really, really top draw folk rock band. And they're built around this twin sister duo who've been playing music together since they were kids. Ann Wilson, the singer, Nancy Wilson, the guitarist, phenomenal guitarist. And they have that sort of intuitive power that you get when you get siblings playing together. They don't sound like anyone else. They can, they're, they're just brilliant. I mean, there's a load of old clips of them playing live on like Saturday night special and stuff. And they, they slam as a band. I mean, they really are great. I know like Alexis Petrudis is one where you spoke to him, he talked about, you know, bands making pragmatic decisions when they get to a certain point and going, do we do this or do we accept that we need to mm-hmm. take a step back? And Heart do this in about 1985. They have a little run of albums at Brigade, Bad Animals, and Heart. I think the other way around, actually. So, but they do it by getting really top draw songwriters. So Bernie Taupin comes in, yeah. Holly Knight comes in, who wrote Love is a Battlefield, Simply the Best, Better Be Good to Me for Tina Turner, Jim Valance, who's Brian Adams' main sidekick. They draft these guys in to write with them and they pick some judiciously choose some very, very good cover versions overhaul the image so they look like a glam band but when like Aerosmith get rebooted Aerosmith could not be happier Mm. you know Aerosmith have had I mean an awful awful decade I mean they're strung out on heroin you know they can't get arrested in terms of record deal they're estranged as a band they hate each other and when they get back on board okay we are not going to let this go and they run with it Heart never ever seem comfortable they're very very serious musicians and it's very sad in that Anne Wilson the vocalist the singer was like the bigger of the two so like Nancy Wilson was very very thin you know so like red long sort of red hair there's issues with um you know her weight goes up significantly and it just is awful the way it's handled I mean there's stories flying around about you know getting a load of grief from the record company about this they start essentially hiding her in the band. I mean, it's a terrible story. And, you know, the video for Alone, which is kind of a masterpiece in itself, I mean, it really is, you know, it's like exploding pianos and, you know, women riding black horses. And, you know, she's sort of shot on this balcony in like the far distance. It's just like, are you embarrassed of her? I mean, it, I mean it's terrible. And, you know, she's one of the most gifted singers. When we talk about them making a very pragmatic decision of how to reboot their career, and they did what they needed to do, and all credit to them. But Alone, I think, is a brilliant, brilliant record. It's absolutely top-flight power ballad. There's two tracks I'd like to take together on this side yeah. as well. Kiss Crazy Crazy Nights 
and White Snake, here I go again. White Snake, to some degree, had to do the same thing as Heart. And they were big, you know, they were big enough that they could headline Monsters of Rock in this country, but they had a slightly stodgy quality. And around that period, David Coverdale effectively bins off most of the rest of the band, relocates to America. He has this interesting change in his speaking voice. When you see interviews with him before and after, I say in the book, you know, 1984, 85, he sounds like a bloke from Redcar in Yorkshire. By 1987, he sounds like Roger Moore's kind of like, you know, long, long lost half brother. To be fair to him, he had some horrific vocal dif- um, problems with his voice box yeah. around that time. He had long surgery, but he basically reinvents Whitesnake as an American band. The sound becomes very LA. It's much younger musicians, it's much tighter, it's much more compressed. And it's quite a rare example of the reboots eclipsing the originals. Mm. Um, you know, David Coverdale was a graphic design teacher originally. You know, he understands very clearly that things need to work visually and essentially says, we've got three years of very hard touring around America or we do one video which is on microwave rotation on MTV. And he goes for the latter and those videos are inescapable. Do you like this as a record? Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. There's a huge pop sensibility in the structure of a song like Here I Go Again. Yeah, it was what David Coverdale did very, very cleverly with White Snake. Essentially, he just tightened the bolts up on it. Kiss are almost just like an industry in their own right. They've had essentially three massive singles. I Was Made For Loving You, Detroit Rock City, and this, Crazy Crazy Nights, all of which are masterpieces Mm. and have this complete halo effect on everything else they do. I mean, this is absolutely top draw moron rock. From from a pop fan point of view, right, if life is a radio, turn up to 10. Okay? <laughs> what, what a lyric. That is fantastic. Because And that then flows into what is probably one of the best choruses of 1987, if not the whole 80s. You can't touch it. I mean, I'd actually forgotten how much I like this record. And, and it's also, at its best, what American glam metal channeled was that kind of yob spirit hmm. of people like the Sweet and Mott the Hoople. It's got that sort of exuberance to it. It doesn't sound dated, I don't think, and it's got that kind of wall of noise production. Crazy Crazy Nights just sounds like an incredibly expensive 48-track studio where people are just flamethrowering you know, piles of money yep. and just yep. saying, spend what you need to make this sound bigger and nastier than anything else out there. And by God, they succeed. Good Billy Idol is minor key. He's he's great in a minor key one. Eyes Without a Face. Eyes Without a Face, yeah. White Wedding and um, Midnight Hour, More, More, More. It's those three songs. Yeah. Him in a kind of parping major key, fist in the air, it, I, I think that, I think that's all we need. To, all we need to say about uh, Idol, really. If you look up the Guinness Hit Singles book for Billy Idol, he is quoted as being snarling rock and roll rebel of the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> Here in England in nineteen eighty five, I can be playing at the Wolfram Hall, having glasses thrown at me by blokes called Don, or I could just go where the money is and go to America, make some knucklehead rock records, and have the absolute time of my life. Like. You know, can you really... I mean, for all that he got pilloried for being a bit of a sellout, can you really blame Ian Asprey for doing that rather than staying in Bradford? I would. (laughs) I was sort of the alarm as 
there's sort of like a kind of hairy left wing, you know, Welsh. I sort of always filed them under like, along with sort of New Model Army, who I really liked when I was yeah. a teenager. But I would guess quite clearly, this is like the last gasp of someone going, you know how we turned you two from a kind of sweaty, earnest post-punk band into stadium-filling big boys? I reckon we might be able to do the same with the alarm. It's got a drum machine on it, which I wasn't really wasn't expecting. You don't you don't hear it much these days, and I can I can no, see you don't. Simple Minds had worked, you two had worked, mm. the Pure were kind of on the way to getting much bigger, Depeche Mode on it. I think you can see why people in record companies went, look, there were these people that were right out on the margins in 1983. The singer's got a big voice, we could do something with this. You know, you can't win a coconut every time, so I can't. No. Uh, I can't blame them for that. And on a sort of similar, similar line, the, that side closes with uh, "Sugar Mice" by Marillion. Now, I'd mm. have to admit, when I was a sort of very earnest 14, 15 year old, I loved Marillion. I thought it was really clever, complicated, involved music. I mean, this is odd that you forget that they were really big. Yeah. As you said, there is this pervasive sense of this album of things coming to a close. And I think this is really, they're on the exit ramp at this point. You know, the really big album, Script for Jester's Tear, was 85. This is two years on. This is the last single off the album, I think. After this, you've got a B-Sides compilation, a live album, and then Fish is off at that point. What really dates glam metal and a lot of other music from this time is that these bands were ridiculous, but they were very sincere about doing it. And I miss it to some degree because everything now is referential and ironic. And, And there's a very sort of heartfelt sincerity to a lot of music at this time. And at its worst, that gives you hue and cry. At its best, it gives you some of the more poignant stuff that, say, Marillion did. I think it's why, you know, if you played a kid now, we're saying if you played them to Pal, I don't think it would make sense. Mm -hmm. But if you played them, say, a Talking Heads or a Blondie record from 10 years earlier, it would make sense because it has that sense of dramatic irony. And I think that's the fault line that runs through music from then to now is, did you have that self-awareness or not? And Marillion probably didn't. So record two, side one, kicks off with, and we've given them a bit of a mention already, Sweet Little Mystery by Wet, Wet, Wet. Yeah, this is, um, I'd give them the same thing of Billy Idol in terms of, you like, I think they work in a minor key. I always quite like wishing I was lucky. I always like that thing, I said, when you've got like those Scottish guys tapping into that sort of American thing, yeah, quite a good look on that for, you know, they, when they very first came out, you know, the old Levi's denims and stuff. It's gone a bit too far at this point. You know, as we were saying, that kind of synthetic 1987 sound. So we go from Wet, Wet, Wet to Curiosity Killed Cat and Misfit. This is another one of, that was, uh, I kept seeing labelled as Sophisti Pop. And again, it's that sort of tail end of what had probably been coming out of the WAG Club in about 1985, you know, being quite clued into sort of jazz music and big hats. And by 1987, it's this. I mean, it's not as trying to listen to as stuff like the Hue and Cry and the Wet Wet. So it's Stuart Levine. 
Mm. Um, and, you know, he's got like an interesting track record. He was doing interesting stuff with pushing soul music forwards into the 80s. He did Love Wars for Womack and Womack, which is a fantastic record. Yeah. You know, really that beautiful kind of warm, synthy sort of production. Did the big Simply Red albums. I don't think it works as well here just because the song isn't as good. Mm. There's that weird thing where they, Andy Warhol directs the video. Yeah. Yeah, so the story goes that um, they were in a club in New York and Andy Warhol gravitated towards them. It's interesting, though, because you watch the video for it and Andy Warhol's in there. Yeah. It's an interesting wee time capsule of, of 1987 to think, wow, Andy Warhol, I think it was one of his last projects as well. It's very near the end of his life. I mean, it's odd in that you go, you know, a year earlier he was working with Jean-Michel Basquiat mm. and, like, Keith Haring and people. I suppose the best thing you could say about Curious to Kill the Cat is they had a very brief moment in the sun. Yeah. And they grabbed it with both hands. Next to that is another cover version, mm. big film tie-in, Los Lobos and La Bamba. I mean, this is, again, when we talk about thing, the sense of things drawing to an end, I think this is probably the fag end of that kind of 50s Americana mm. revival that's been very strong through about 86, 87. That look was great. I can't see obviously why it came back at that point. Do you remember about a year before Punk Breaks, they have that huge rock and roll revival show at Wembley Stadium. They bring over Jerry Lee Lewis and I think B.B. King. And, you know, they sell out Wembley Stadium. It's a massive deal. And all these like, and in the footage in the background, you see Malcolm McLaren and I think Westwood is with him and they have the Let It Rock stall. I interviewed Don Letts recently for Mr. Porter around the release of his autobiography. And we were looking at this old photo of him when he was working in Acme around the same time in the 70s. And I was saying to him, you know, where did that come from? And he just said, well, we wanted things to look futuristic. And that was so clean and so streamlined. So we kind of tapped back into it. And I don't know if it's just one of those things that was kind of stitched into the British pop cultural sensibility that whenever things are in a bit of a holding pattern, it kind of emerges again. And you saw it to a lesser extent about seven or eight years ago when that, you know, Matey from the Arctic Monkeys and Jake Bug and all those people were suddenly dressing like Gene Vincent. Yeah. That escapism back to that early rock and roll days, the early 60s, a a slightly romanticised version of it. Um, But I I think people bought into that. I'm I'm sure they did. I I think think you're really right. That's a huge part of it. And there's also, you know, that whole hard times look, the face, you know, wrote about. And it was quite an accessible look as well at the time. Mm. This is almost the kind of end of that 501 type culture. Again, yeah. you know, we talk again about now 10 being an end of something. This is almost the kind of end of that. I don't think there's many more of those type of 501 adverts. No. I mean, they're really great looks. I mean, that. I mean I'm mean, i a real sucker for that period. It really does look yeah. good. Track four is the Fat Boys and the Beach Boys. I feel a little sad listening to this. In that obviously, at the time, the Fat Boys were essentially a novelty act. Yeah. With hindsight and knowing more about this kind of stuff, they were a, quite a significant band. Yeah, they and they were big. I mean, yeah, they were in movies and Crush Groove, you know, all these sort of films. I think they got kind of trammeled down this path where, and they were essentially retooled as a novelty act. Hmm. Yeah, they were previously called the Disco Three, which is a much much better yeah. name. Disco Three is a great name for a hip hop band. Yeah. And this story is about you know on the European tour. 
And the manager is basically force feeding them. Like you've got to get fatter because that's now your look. I think they are the last stage of people thinking that hip hop was going to be like a fad. Within the year of this, you start seeing stuff like the really expansive, obviously the Beastie Boys go massive, but more creatively, interestingly, De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, all the stuff that starts crossing over properly, there's something going on here and we need to build on it. Next to the Fat Boys and the Beach Boys, we've got, I think, the only Stock Aiken Waterman track of the album, which is Love in the First Degree by Bananarama. Here we see Bananarama, I suppose, beginning to hit the ground running again. This is the end of the sort of Siobhan Fahey era, isn't it? I think, is this the last single with her? I think this is the last single with Siobhan. It certainly was the last performance that they did at the Brits yeah. with her as well. I've got an enormous amount of fondness for Pete Waterman. I just think he's got such a brilliant story. And I love that he always sort of seems a bit like Aldridge Pryor from Viz, in that whatever, <laughs> whatever musical genre is up for discussion... Pete Waterman will appear somewhere claiming to have played some absolutely pivotal role in it. And he is sort of like, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, can at the Bristol Winter Guards. Yeah, I was the first person to put them on. You know, I was like, first person here, Van de Graaff generator. Like, yeah, Adam and the Ants booked him. But the weird thing is, most of it is true. Yeah. And I was watching a little while ago this very cheap, sort of quite obscure YouTube documentary about reggae sound systems being the Midlands in the 70s and 80s. Who should turn up on it but old Wasp by himself, Pete Waterman, claiming to have played this pivotal role in the development of, like, dub reggae in Nottingham or wherever. And then, true enough, the next bit is two people from some very obscure dub sound in the Midlands going, yeah, and you've got to say, none of this would have happened without Pete Waterman, you know? (laughs) There's always something alluring about points where an artist's output goes completely belly up. I'm more interested in reading about Give My Regards to Broad Street than I am reading about Band on the Run or something like, you know, Never Let Me Down than it is about Diamond Dogs in some ways because, you know, it tells you more about what was going on. I mean, like, the best stuff, and I would say this is pretty much top draw stock aching and water. Yeah. I never get the sense that they drew any critical distinction between this and some absolute old bollocks that Big Fun were putting out, in some ways is rather charming. The other thing I really like about this is that after all the sort of pomposity of Marillion and Hue and Cry and the Sophisty Pop and the idea of just having Banana Arm just crash landing in the middle of this side. Yeah. I mean, it's proper like, you know, tops off down at heaven. It just sounds great. I mean, it's... And actually, that's where you would tie a direct link to that and Crazy Crazy Nights because they both do exactly the same thing. And very, very similar dynamics. And in that way, I could imagine Banana Rama having covered Crazy Crazy Nights. Could I have imagined... Kiss. No, I couldn't imagine Kiss doing Love in the First Degree. But... Do you know what? I could imagine Bon Jovi doing Love in the First Degree. Between, like, the boldest end of disco and the biggest end of glam metal, it's essentially high energy with guitar solos. But, you know, you, can't, you just can't dislike Banana Armour, can you? I mean, my era would be... I really like the kind of rackety early stuff. I think Cruel Summer's an amazing record. And they're one of the few bands that I don't think anyone would begrudge them. Just even people who hate pop music... I think would struggle to begrudge them or the long afterlife that their career has had. Yeah. They're a very very likeable proposition. Cliff Richard, my pretty one. Cliff is 
almost beyond criticism. Yeah. Him and his, you know, extremely loyal fan base clearly care nothing for what smart ass like I think it's a bit like Alan Tarney on co-writing here who wrote a masterpiece we don't talk anymore Cliff knew that he needed to get back on track who do you call you call Alan Tarney had Tarney been working with our heart yeah yeah Yeah. I think he'd done Sun Always Shines on TV you want a great our heart story yes please where I grew up around like Teddington Twickenham way the video for the sun always shines on tv is filmed in a derelict church in teddington architecturally significant gothic church was in ruins when i was a kid and they film it in there and then it's left derelict again for a few years afterwards and some rough kids from my school broke into the church one night and they said they went in and all the mannequins from the video were still there <laughs> just looming in the darkness these sort of broken headless mannequins all over uh, St Stephen's Church and he said they absolutely bricked it and they all screamed and ran out of there oh fantastic <laughs> the happy ending to that was that church was eventually taken over as a community project and it still runs now as a really wonderful art centre oh excellent so it did get a second life but it's, oh. and it's a very very spooky building in its day now next to that is He Matthew by Carl Fialka I remember being Listening, having this album as a kid, and listening, I've just been baffled by this song. I don't know who Carol Fialka was from. This was a number nine hit. Yeah, in the run-up to Christmas, when you have to be shifting a significant number of records to get into the top ten. It's really odd. It sounds like a cross between something off Big Science by Laurie Anderson, Big Science or uh, Oh Superman, crossed with You Will Always Find Me in the Kitchen at Parties by Jonah Louie. It's got like yeah. the same sort of like, that sort of umpar synth thing to it. The uh, conceit for the song is Carol Fialka watching TV with his son Matthew and pointing out these terrible things. My immediate thought going back to it is if I was Mrs. Fialka, um, it doesn't speak highly to uh, Mr. Fialka's parenting, I don't think. (laughs) In my research, I actually wrote down all of the TV shows that he quotes on that. Well, the thing is, all the TV shows he quotes sound really good because they're clearly what his kid would rather be watching. Oh, yeah. His kid would rather be watching The A-Team and Teen Wolf and Dallas and Dynasty rather than his, like bore of a dad making him watch like you know something improving on channel four (laughs) and there was a lot of that in 1987 next up we have got crockett's theme from jan hammer finishing off side three i love this that's great i really really love this as a record this is and it just makes me i can't even drive and it makes me want to be driving along somewhere in a big convertible, driving along, shades on. I mean, this is real, like, cocaine psychosis music, isn't it? They used music really, really well throughout that show. And there's this, I think this occurs at the end of an episode where I think Don Johnson's character has just dobbed his on-off girlfriend into the police. She's getting led away on a police helicopter and Crockett's theme, you know, fires up. Yeah, I think this is great. And it's still, the production on it is superb. I heard... Um, Anthony Teasdale is a really good sort of Balearic and house DJ. I saw him about a year, year and a half ago playing at Spiritland in London and he opened his set with Crockett's theme. And I've got to say, it sounded the absolute business. Oh, I bet. Right, let's move on to say four. Nina Simone, My Baby Just Cares For Me. This was on the, off the back of the Chanel number no. five advert. It's a great record. You can't, you know, you can't really argue with it it kind of set in my mind what and who I thought Nina Simone was. Jazz standards, nice piano work. Nina Simone is this absolute just force of nature. 
it's sort of odd that I think this sort of reframed her in the public mind as being, it was a certain kind of historical black music that was rebooted at this point. It was the visualisation here because there was an animated video that went along with it. Um, yeah, with which, the cat. Yeah, which again, it, it just helps to kind of almost rebrand the Nina Simone story. And certainly to me, I wasn't aware of Nina Simone at 14. But you well, and it's also, it's an odd reminder of how recently there was a period where you just couldn't hear everything and you didn't know what things sounded like. Yeah. And often because a lot of these back catalogues were so badly handled, if you did hear this music, you often heard it in the form of like a slightly crappy compilation from a garage. And even quite late on, I remember in the late 90s hearing a um, brilliant version of um, I Put a Spell on You. Yeah. And I remember trying to get a copy and you could not find that record anywhere. And in the end, I had to buy on import from somewhere this, you know, four volume Screaming Jay Hawkins box set for about 40 quid, because that was the only way you could hear this stuff. And, you know, the idea that all these commercials that rebooted this music, you know, they did a very, very good job of rehabilitating a lot of these artists. Well, I mean, you know, first time I heard Crosstown Traffic by Jimi Hendrix was the Wranglers ad. Yeah. You know, first time I heard Marvin Gaye, first time I heard this, you know, first time I heard Root Petit, I think would have probably been through an advert. You forget that now, that those things are just part of your consciousness. Yeah. Next up, we've got Erasure doing The Circus. They're a really interesting band in that I, I slightly feel like, for whatever reason, people constantly forget them. And, the first, and I think that it's happened a few times in that I think... Remember when that um, they did that compilation in the mid '90s called Pop Twenty? Yeah, twenty singles off the bat. I mean, they nailed it. I mean, their output was phenomenal. And then they seemed to kind of drift away a bit after that. I mean, that that compilation was big. I mean, that sold a lot of copies. I don't ever really feel like they get their due. There's only a small handful of Erasure songs that you hear now. Yeah, it's and... sometimes in a little respect. Yeah, and occasionally the ABBA covers, and that's about it. You know, aesthetically and culturally. They were a very bold band in a lot of ways, in a way that, again, I think seems kind of rote now, but I don't think was a done deal at the time. They were proper pop stars. You know, they were on Saturday morning TV. There were spoof sketches about them, you know, Trevor and Simon did them. Now, The Circus, I don't think is quite up there. No. B-list erasure is still pretty good by anyone else's standards. Yeah. The House Martins track surprising because I never think of the House Martins as being like a 1987 band. I think of them as 1985. 87 seems too late for them. They seem like a band out of time. It actually sounds almost like the Beautiful South. It's beginning yes. to sound more. You've got Dave Hemingway and Paul Heaton doing the kind of vocal together. Yeah. Very, I mean, it sounds, you're right, it sounds much, much more... Like a, it's got that sort of ponderous quality. Don't mm-hmm. like beautiful South. I, I went to university in Hull, and I mean they're a big, big back presence still in Hull. Like they, they they stayed living in the city. To their enormous credit, you know, as a band, they ploughed a lot of money back into the centre of Hull. You know, to like social enterprises and things. But it was almost like there was a local bylaw where you couldn't be in a pub for more than fifteen minutes without hearing. A Beautiful South song or mm. a House Martin song more often on the jukebox. Listening to this again, I was thinking like, I don't know who listens to this stuff. It's a very good white soul voice. 
you know, they're structurally, they're really well put together. They're very clever lyrics. Like, I don't know, because it's not driving music. It's not club music. They clearly really connected with mm. maybe a lot of people who didn't buy music in many other ways. Yeah. And, but I think with this, you've really got a feeling of, and again, I mean, this may link as well. I mean, I'm getting really into big overarching theme here. We've had an election in 1987 for left-leaning socialist pop stars who'd gone all out on the red wage thing. I can see why there was probably like a pervasive air of disillusion. Yeah. And that sense of melancholy, I think, pushes over into the next song, It's Over, Level 42. And I've got a lot, I'm a big defender of Level 42. Like I love yeah. that jazz funk thing they came out of. I think they reinvented themselves into a proper pop group. Things are coming to end. This is the penultimate single from Running in the Family album, which is massive. This has got divorce energy and it's all over it. This um, is six minutes of a man burning photo albums in a little chef lay-by. Side four needs a lift after that. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so, so we get a, a slightly worn out gold lamy suit that hasn't been out of the cupboard for a while. Yeah. And we see Martin Fry reinventing the lexicon, shall we say, ever so slightly, yeah. with When Smokey Sings. You know, I have a huge amount of fondness for ABC generally, Martin Fry particularly. This, I think, you know, they've, obviously, they've had a funny old career. In the, you know, the lexicon of love is almost just beyond reproach as a piece mm. of work. But I think the problem they've got, I think when ABC really worked on that first album, what they ally is that, really genuine sense of like intellect and that sense of you know four working class impoverished blokes from Sheffield it's aspirational in the same way that you know Jam and Lewis in America were making very very upscale music for black Americans in bad areas of Detroit to listen to I always always find that so attractive either in people in culture when people do that I think the problem here is that the cleverness outweighs the heart. Yeah. I mean, for me, the lexicon of love referenced the aspiration of soul music and the aspiration of what Motown did in the 60s without mentioning it. Yeah. Whereas this has to reference Smokey Robinson in the title to let you know we're still referencing Motown. And by doing that, you've missed the point. Yeah. So much of what's glorious in the 80s is that sense of people reaching for things above their station. And I think you see that, whether that's like, you know, what Lee McQueen was doing in fashion, you know, someone who looks like this Barrow Boy from South London saying, you know, I will do tailoring that is so good. Prince Charles wants my suits. Someone like Mark Armand is doing, going, you know, I'm this like weird performance artist from Leeds, but I will capture the same sort of glory that Northern Soul Records did. I mean, actually, Tainted Love is another really good example of that, of someone dragging that spirit and drama and aspiration of soul into the 80s and doing something new with it. So sitting next to ABC um, is Squeeze. I mean, this seems like an odd record for inclusion. It was a decent-sized hit on MTV. Had a bit of quite an odd video that Aid Edmondson and Aid Edmondson had sort of migrated over into pop videos, he did like fuzz boxes videos and things at that point. Um, I think it did pretty well on MTV off the back of that video. It doesn't sound bad. I think the problem that the guys from Squeeze, Biffin and Tilburg, I think the problem that they have as songwriters 
at their best, Squeeze can knock out absolutely machine-tooled three-minute pop songs. And you go back to something like Another Nail in My Heart or Pulling Muscles from Michelle or Up the Junction, you go, they're up there with the best stuff that Ray Davis did. I think they're not far off some of the best stuff Paul McCartney did. I mean, they're really, they're brilliant, brilliant records. They can also knock out an awful lot of serviceable stuff, which would probably be pretty good by anyone else's standards. But by theirs, you go, it's okay. Yeah. And actually, this is, we haven't mentioned that so far, but in terms of white guitar groups going back into the studio, I think the spirit of Sledgehammer mm. looms very large over a lot of these records. Yeah. You know, the kind of the synth, the orchestral feel, the very brash production, the big eye-popping videos for MTV. I think a lot of people kind of had a weather eye on what Peter Gabriel was doing. And this sounds like, I don't know without checking, but this sort of sounds like that sound that Hugh Padgham had mm-hmm. at the time. Or, doing like Press to Play for Paul McCartney. Yeah. Like those, that sort of very, there's no bottom end to these records at no, all. No, there's definitely a Hugh Padgham button being pressed somewhere around about this <laughs> studio to make this sound very 1987. <laughs> So we've got to the end of side four. Just a small number at the end to finish things off. It goes out on a it goes out on a biggie. This is an odd record. Of, I was I was a really big Pogues fan. Got a big Irish contingent. You know, like when you do car journeys as a kid, and we always did a lot of long car journeys. Because my dad's family were in Liverpool, my mum's family were in Devon. We spent a lot of time just shuttling around motorways on holiday. And there was about six tapes that everybody agreed on. Two of them were Rum Sodomy and the Lash by the Pogues and If I Should Fall From Grace With God. I still think they really hold up as records. I think they are a really significant band in terms of specifically the London Irish experience. Mm. I think what they did with pulling Irish music forwards into the 80s Shane McGowan is someone who's kind of blasted his talent away, but, you know, I think he deserves to be regarded as highly as he was. This is a really interesting record because in many ways, it's somewhat unrepresentative of their output, but it is their best known record by a country mile. Even with the darker lyrics, it's a lot more musically sentimental than much yeah. of their output is. It's become just su- such a part of culture now. And yeah. I mean, when you look at the, the chart statistics around this song, for example, I mean, it's charted for the last 17 years in a row every Christmas. It's just become part of that narrative that to actually be able to step back and look at it objectively is very, very hard. For me, I think one of the big keys to this record is Steve Lillywhite. I mean, he, yes. he obviously was a big, big part of that, um, of smoothing the sound, I think. Well, there's two. I mean, you're, you're right. Steve Lillywhite is a huge element, but because the genesis of this song is interesting in mm. that when you read or listen to stuff about the Pogues, they were phenomenally gifted musicians and they could work very fast and they could pick things up very quickly. So... You know, they they essentially started off as a covers band. And then around the end of recording Red Roses for me, their first album, Shane McGowan sort of like sheepishly goes, oh, I've been, you know, writing some of my own stuff. And they also look at them and go like, Jesus, like they come to the studio, I think, quite fully formed. This song 
isn't like that. This has a kind of elephantine gestation period. Yeah, they work on this for about three years in different formats. They're originally working on it with Elvis Costello. Mm. Um, the original working title that Elvis Costello has is Christmas Eve in the Drunk Tank, which they all sensibly go, no, shut up, that isn't going to be a hit record. And it's pieced together really, really slowly and quite painfully. And I think what you realise when you go back and listen to those demos, so originally the early versions have Carter Reardon, the bassist, singing yeah. the female part, and it just none of it works. The production, the, the arrangement is the same, but the production doesn't work. Um, it doesn't have the middle eight, and the female vocal doesn't work in it. What pushes it all into place is Steve Lillywhite's arrangement, the big kind of waltz section in the middle that they put in the refrain, and then I think most of all, Kirsty McColl's delivery. Yeah. That's what pulls it together as a song. And I think her performance, you don't realise until you hear it without her, you're like, oh yeah, it really, really is lacking. I had this conversation with a friend and said, can you actually imagine that song without Kirsty McCall in it? And we both, without even hesitating, said no. She is just intertwined in the whole legacy of what that song is. Am I right in thinking that her vocal originally was a, was a guide vocal? Uh, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me. I've read something with Johnny Marr where he said that her her two real gifts were for sequencing. And I know that I've read stuff where Steve Lillywhite said about, I think possibly the might be in the Joshua Tree, saying about it was originally meant to run in a completely different sequence. Mm. And he'd taken the test pressing of it home. And Kirsten McCall was like, well, it's in completely the wrong order. Yeah. Like you need to start with this, move to this, move to this. And Johnny, but Johnny Marr said she was incredibly good at that. But he said she was an absolute demon for being able to harmonize, you know, stuff like her own stuff, like they don't know. And also what she brought into like uh, Happy, Happy Mondays, Hallelujah. Mm. You said the vocal on that. And I think with this, that she's doing that whilst working around a vocalist who is not in tune. Yeah. Harmonizing to the band rather than to him, which is very, I think is very, must be very, very difficult to do. But I think she really elevated a lot of those records in a way that I don't think she fully got no. the credit for at the time. No. The Now team nearly hit proper gold with this because yeah. that single was released on the same day as this album was released. So this was absolutely brand new at the time of the, the Now 10 release. And within three weeks, it was number two. Yeah. And to my knowledge, I don't think there's been a new album, up, well, up to this point anyway, that had been released that actually nailed the Christmas number one. Ah. And they oh, nearly got it. So close then. And they nearly got it. <laughs> I still, it still amazes me that this didn't get Christmas number one. And I don't know if that's just hindsight. You now go, well, of course, it's a massive Christmas record. Maybe it didn't sound like that at the time. Yeah. The Pet Shop Boys were so imperial at this point. I guess, and they were also, they had a much bigger existing fan base and that they were a proper mm. pop group. This got to number two on its own merit, which is, which, yeah. is, which, is, which is very laudable. I suppose the fan base the Pogues had was very, very partisan. I mean, they probably got a bit of an uplift from that. The record I would compare this to is uh, Dexy's Come On Eileen. And mm. I think Dex Con Eileen is a brilliant pop song, but it's also a deeply strange record, you know, lyrically, thematically, structurally. You know, nowadays, we're like, oh, it's Come On Eileen. 
Yeah. But I think there was probably, you know, there was a point when you heard that record and people heard that record for the first time and it sounded really odd. And I think this probably has the same quality in that it's now part of the canon. 30 top chart hits on the brilliant double album. Now that's what I call music 10. I think for all its flaws and its shortcomings, this is an accurate portrayal of the time and the place. I think it's an odd, melancholy year coming to an end at a time when a lot of careers and lineups and genres are coming to an end. And in that sense, I think it is as faithful a representation of the time as you can ask it to be. There are obvious things. I mean, it's odd, you know, in a year when Bad by Michael Jackson has come out, mm. you know, there's no Michael Jackson on there. That seems like an oversight. Um, um, Animal by Def Leppard. Yeah. That, that, was, that was a top 10 hit on, you know, the album Hysteria, which is the high watermark of glam metal. And again, I mean, if we're talking about the winds of change, you know, things coming through, the thing that also happens around this month, which is probably the death, as I say in the book, is the death knell for glam metal, is with almost no fanfare and nobody being interested in it, nobody noticing it, Guns N' Roses release Appetite for Destruction, which will go on to become, it's the same year, Def Leppard release Hysteria, which is their masterpiece. You know, I would say to anyone listening to this, if you love pop record and you think Def Leppard is hairy old knackers and it's not for me, just go to Spotify and listen to Hysteria. It owes as much to ABBA or Spandau Ballet as it does to what you think of as heavy metal. It is a flawless, electronically constructed piece of music. It's a phenomenal record. I write about it a lot in the book. But within six months, you have Def Leppard release that and Guns N' Roses release Appetite for Destruction. I mean, it's a brilliant, brilliant album. I think it is probably the one of the best metal bands albums of all time. But around the time this has come out, that is like the slow puncture that glam metal gets at that point. And I think, you know, you'd, you'd say, look, there's things like Animal by Def Leppard. I think Michael Jackson's kind of a glaring omission from this. I think the rest of it is as good as pop music could be at that point. And that's what makes these snapshots so important to go back to because it actually tells the story of what the landscape looked like in the UK charts. And from that point of view, it's perfect. But I think in a year's time when people have, you know, discovered Roland 303s and ecstasy, and I think there's much more exuberant feeling that's coming through. And I think now 11 is redolent of that, that, you know, it's the sound of younger, less jaded people taking control, which really is what the story of pop music should be, an eternal cycle of burnout and renewal. Let something, you know, let a thousand new flowers come through, and they really do in in grand style. So I think this is what it is, but it's um, it, it tells you a lot about the country at the time. Justin, thank you so much for joining me here on the Bike to Now podcast. It's been an absolute thrill. It's, I'm an esteemed company on this show, so it's uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's fabulous. Been able to actually take an album and share in somebody's memories, and I think the the insight you've brought into glam metal as well has changed my view of now ten. So thank you so much. That that's all I can ask for. I mean, let's say that was when I wrote the book. 
I didn't want to write something for committed metal fans because you know who they are and it's a boring undertaking. But the real hope was if I could write something that connected with people who had no interest in listening to the music and you go, look, it doesn't matter if you never want to hear this stuff, this is why it mattered. That was what I wanted to do. And hopefully we've done the same thing today.